The nature of software projects is changing. Projects are using a wider variety of cloud providers and SaaS tools. Projects are being broken up into more Git repositories, and the code in those repositories is being deployed into smaller microservices. With the increased number of tools and repositories and deployment targets, it can become difficult to manage software policy. Policy defines how different parts of an application can behave. Which parts of your application can access a given Amazon S3 bucket? Which parts of your application can communicate with the authentication microservice? Which developers are allowed to push a new build to production? Shimon Toltz is the CTO and co-founder of Detree, a platform for policy enforcement and code compliance. Shimon joins the show to talk about continuous delivery, configuration management, and policy enforcement. He also explains the motivation for his company, Detree, which performs analysis across a user's GitHub repository to map the committers, the code components, and repositories. Detree is quite an interesting platform and represents a lot of trends in the world of software and engineering that we've covered in previous episodes, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shimon Toltz, you are the CTO and co-founder of Detree. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. It's very fun to be here. The subject that I want to begin with is continuous delivery. We've done a bunch of shows about continuous delivery. The practices continue to evolve. The tools continue to evolve. To give people some context about where we are today in 2019, why did the world move towards continuous delivery? So I think that the world moved to continuous delivery because... People want to have reproductible automated processes. So as I look at it, what happened is that we used to have our source code. And then we have everything that happens up until we deploy our application onto production. And that used to be a black hole. And like I can imagine a company, and it happened in many companies, where they go like, hey guys, we have a production issue. What happened? And they go in, talk to the developers, and the developers are like, Look, we haven't committed any code in the last two days. We haven't changed anything. She's like, okay, so what happened? So they understand that there's a black hole between the, the code of the application and being in production. And at this point, I think that everyone started actually automating all the processes in order to, one, have them reproductible, in order to know what are you doing, how should you deploy this. And the second one, of course, is speed and agility. Like the time it takes you to deploy into production should be the fastest possible. How are team structures changing in this evolving continuous delivery world? Teams are changing drastically. So if we look back even eight years ago, we used to have like the, uh, the development team, the production team, the security team. And everyone was like a step in the way, the release management team. And today, the developers are responsible for everything end-to-end. And they write the code, they test it, they deploy it, they wake up at 5 in the morning if there's a problem, and they're actually also responsible for the cost of how much it costs on the cloud. And the structures, I think, today is that 
all of the departments that used to be uh, in the way between the developers and the production are now enablers. So you see like SRE and DevOps teams building tools to enable different uh, development teams uh, work better, but they're no longer the bottlenecks that everything has to go through them. We've done shows about DevOps, and some people say that DevOps is a movement, it's a cultural ideology, some people say it's a set of best practices, some people say there are actual roles that you assign to DevOps, like this person is doing DevOps, like I'm a DevOps engineer. Do you have a perspective on DevOps and whether it's a role or if it's a description of practices and what the relationship between DevOps and continuous delivery is? So I think that at the end of the day, um, we need to ship software and we need it to be reliable and as fast as possible. And if you look at the DevOps, um, let's say, call it transition, revolution, I think that it's giving more responsibility to each person and it's working in an agile, continuous way. So it's no longer, I wrote my code, now it's QA's problem. And QA shipped it into production, into like the team that puts it into production. And then when there is a problem, they go back and say, guys, the software has a problem. So the QA says the developers made the problem, but the developers say, no, you release it into production as a QA. So it's your problem. It's your fault. And they start fighting with each other whose fault it is when actually instead of actually going and fixing it and having ownership. So to me, DevOps is giving ownership to a person end to end in terms of how to uh, build the software and ship it. I don't really believe in the title DevOps engineer. For example, in my company, we only have software developers. Some of them do more front-end. Some of them do more back-end. Some of them focus more on like infrastructure as code. But at the end, everyone's a software developer. And I expect everyone to know how the software reaches production. And this is actually what I ask people in uh, interviews. Like, how did the code that you wrote at the end of the day served customers in production? And many people go like, gee, I have no idea. So I think that DevOps is making sure that you have responsibility end-to-end on to writing and shipping the software. One subject that we've covered recently that relates to what you were doing at Detree is that cloud and Kubernetes have made it much easier for developers to spin up infrastructure. And in some cases, it's led to infrastructure sprawl, where you have lots and lots of little pieces of infrastructure, and as the infrastructure expands, it begins to outstrip the number of developers and their visibility into that infrastructure. Have you seen this increase in infrastructure sprawl? Um, yeah, so infrastructure sprawl can be different things, but I can see where um, people might spin up lots of resources in the cloud without having accountability and understanding what's going on. But I think that as you scale and as you progress, you at some point you see like, okay, our bill is very, very high and we need to take care of this. And then companies like uh, switch to infrastructure as code and they understand what's going on. Um, and when that is done, 
um, it's easier to to take control but I think that giving the ability to like like on the one hand you might end up with an infrastructure sprawl but on the other hand you have developers who are going trying different services trying different architectures actually building stuff and and I think that it's a great enabler in this world that is changing the continuous delivery process has become more and more pervasive and the continuous delivery process allows a lot of bugs to be caught throughout the continuous delivery pipeline whether it's it's caught in the integration test process or some other stage in the continuous delivery pipeline but bugs still do make it to production sometimes how does that happen how are bugs still making it to production I think that uh, it's okay. If we try to reach a point where bugs never reach production, I think it's a very problematic place that will cripple us down. And I think that we should constantly deploy into production and make as, as many changes as possible, but make them small changes. Then if you have a problem, its blast radius will be small. And, you know, you can go and write uh, one line of code and then write 10 million lines of test uh, code in order to test this line. But I think that um, you will always have bugs in production, and that's okay. As long as you have good processes, you can revert, you can check. And I'm a strong believer that actual um, testing is done in production. Because building a theater in staging and trying to theater your application, it's nice. You should have tests, you should have unit tests, integration tests, whatever it is that you have, but it will never be the same as the real thing. So I really believe in canary release and like releasing maybe a feature to 1% of your traffic, see how it handles, and then deciding whether you want to revert that or go to 100%. With the emphasis on continuous delivery and many other trends, there is increasing usage of GitHub for doing so many different things in the software development process. GitHub has surpassed the expectations of almost everybody, and probably including the people who actually make GitHub. But Git, GitHub can't be all things to all people. And sometimes it feels like the product is used for so many different things that there's not really room for the product to expand further. What are the places where GitHub is insufficient? Insufficient? So I think that GitHub is doing a great job. I think that um, they really enabled uh, Git to be this uh, the leader. Like that's it. Git has won. Git is the de facto standard. All companies are using that or switching to it or in the process. And I think that GitHub is doing a great job in terms of uh, allowing uh, everyone to use it, allowing the community to leverage it. More in terms of the product, I think that, um, and I've met with uh, Nat, the CEO of uh, GitHub when uh, he was uh, traveling around, and we talked about it. I think that, that their main focus is taking you and building a specific project and building the best like repository and then maybe using GitHub Actions and deploying it to production. And in my point of view, they're looking at it a repo at a repo, like making the best experience repo by repo. Where I think that there are still many challenges, which actually we at the tree help solve, is that how do you look at all of your repositories as a composition? Let's say you have 300 
or even 3,000. We have customers with thousands of repositories. And then you ask yourselves, okay, wait, what do I have there? How do I manage that? How do I understand who is doing what and where? And how can I drive best practices and policies on top of this composition and not a, a repo by repo basis? You mentioned earlier that there's a benefit of what has led us to infrastructure sprawl, and that is that developers have much more autonomy in spinning up infrastructure, and they feel more free. I completely agree with that as as a developer myself. Now, this maps to certain issues in the world of Git, where you could potentially have sprawl in the number of Git repositories that people are managing. Do large companies have issues managing a large number of repos? Yes. Well, can you tell me more about those issues and how they manifest? So it starts with um, when everyone can uh, ha- create a repo and use it. So it starts with no one's actually responsible for the composition of all the repos. So each team has their own repos. And you start a repo for anything, right? Any POC you do, any simple line of code that you have, you just start a repo. And then organizations are faced with hundreds and thousands of repos that they don't know who they belong to. They don't know whether are they connected to any code that's running in production or can they archive them. They don't know if they're active, not active. Do they have any vulnerable code in them? Or maybe they have secret keys in them. And they're just at a place where it's overwhelming. And then they have this, they find there's a problem. I'll give you a real world example. A company has a production outage. They post-mortem it. They see that the database went down. Then they research and they found that they, by using, I don't know, a specific version of the driver, an NPM module, version number four is incompatible with their setup of their database. So now they go like, okay, so we've identified this problem. Now, which one of my repositories has microservices using this module? Which ones are using this version of the module? And then how am I going to make sure that no one's actually going to use this module? Am I going to send an email to all of my developers? Hey guys, please stop using version number four. Going to write a wiki page. Like, and then if you look at the other side, me as a developer, Am I supposed to remember all those emails? Don't use this version or that version or use and don't use this technology. It's, it's crazy because now I have the autonomy as a developer, but I also have the responsibility. But how am I to know what to use? So it becomes very tricky for organizations. There's a term that I have done a show about called GitOps, and it's related to the release process. As I understand, GitOps ties your push to GitHub more closely to the release of code. Can you describe what GitOps is and what it represents? So GitOps is a fairly new term. I think that uh, Alexis from Weaveworks coined it. And we see ourselves as a GitOps company. And if you look at the DevOps days, so like we moved from like all the developers have the autonomy now and the responsibility, and then they started using different tools. 
So they had like 30 different dashboards, uh, like for Jenkins and AWS and all of the different services that they were using. And, and then what they did is they actually started automating everything and everything became uh, codified. I call it YAMLified. And now that you have everything within your source control, let's say Git, GitHub, um, you're doing your operations through pull requests. So it's GitOps, operations through Git. And everything is a pull request. And it's interesting, like some of our customers, we have a customer where they actually use Git and, and pull requests for legal. So they actually have different contracts and they open pull requests in order to do changes and propose changes and have reviewers. And they're actually using GitOps for legal. It's very interesting. You, if you think about it, you can order a pizza using pull requests, right? So in my mind, GitOps world is where your uh, repository is a representation of your production. And you have your source code, you have your infrastructure as code, you have your CI/CD configuration, and everything is codified, and everything is in the repository. So now you no longer have any black holes between what you have in your code and what is running in production. And in a GitOps world, you should be able to redeploy your application 100% just by the code that is within the repository. What are some of the unsolved problems in typical GitOps workflows? So I think that, first of all, um, you have much more code than you ever had before. Today we have more code because we used to have people and processes doing stuff that are now codified. I call it YAMLified. Everything is a YAML file now. So um, now you're, you had gatekeepers and people that would help you before you deploy something into production. Maybe you have a security review, but now it's automatic. And maybe you had someone that would go and deploy an EC2 server, but you no longer have that because you use Terraform or CloudFormation and it will automatically spin up your resources. So if you used to have a person that would look and tell you, hey, you're spinning up an S3 bucket, it should be encrypted. Now you no longer have this person because he can't be a bottleneck and manually spin up all the buckets. But now you need some kind of automatic mechanisms that will be a sort of a gatekeeper to you that will help you and do that in an automated way. So when you open a pull request or submit code and you have a Terraform file and you create a new SQS bucket, it won't let you merge your pull request and it will tell you, hey, listen, Shimon, you, you forgot to enable uh, encryption on your SQS bucket and we're a SOC2 compliant company, so we need to have everything encrypted. And I think that this part is missing all of the safety nets that you had with people and processes and policies that were set in place, now there is actually no way of, of knowing whether the policies are actually being applied or not and knowing what is the actual current status. And you have no way of doing policy enforcement in order to help your developers. So in this new world, you're kind of riding the freeway a uh, hundred miles an hour without any guidance or direction. You, everything is on you. One thing you're describing here, this YAMLification, 
is a push towards more declarative code. And the declarative code sits in the configuration files, and it describes the state of the infrastructure that you desire. This is in contrast to much of the code that we've been writing for a long time, or much of the code that most people have been writing, which is imperative code. It's not declarative code. It's imperative. It's, I want to do this, and then I want to do this, and then I want to do this. For each, do this. Declarative code is very different. Is there something about the transition from imperative code to declarative code that has taken people by surprise and people aren't exactly sure how to deal with it? I think that the, the difference between the two, and I think that why everyone, um, like why de facto we're using declarative code for infrastructure, for example, is because so-called regular code is meant to execute and do things. And that's the most important thing, to do things, to, to make them. And in infrastructure's code, it's not only making sure you spin up those resources. I think that many of the things is also understanding what's going on. So when you look at a Terraform file or a CloudFormation file, you get the sense of what's going to happen, how is it going to, what is it going to spin, and there is like no endless um, resolving of resolving of resolving of, of different uh, if statements and loops and stuff in order to understand what's going to happen. It's fairly simple, right? Spin up this EC2 instance and use this security group. And then you go and you look, ah, this security group is open to this IP and so on. So I think that it's much a simpler and more declarative in the way of understanding what's going to happen. Um, you can, it's harder to do complicated things, but I think that simple is better than complicated. And I think that it's, in order, like, if you do crazy shenanigans to spin up your infrastructure and crazy loops and ifs and crazy conditions, it will be very hard for you to understand what's going on with your infrastructure later on. One part of configuration management that uh, has grown and grown and grown recently is the configuration around Kubernetes. And the thing I hear the most in the Kubernetes configuration frustration is YAML. Like, I've got this really long YAML file that describes a lot of stuff, and it's in YAML, and I don't like the indentation. Why do people complain about YAML? What's what's the big problem with YAML? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's fine. You know, there's YAML, there's TOML, there's many different things. And people will always complain. But I think that I think that it's good. If you think about it, you cannot spin up an instance like a container in Kubernetes without actually writing declarative code. Think of the paradigm shift between having to actually have a server and install it and then moving to going to, for example, EC2 and spinning up an instance. And now, if you're using serverless or, for that matter, ECS containers or Kubernetes, you cannot manually spin up a resource. You just cannot. You have to declare it and run it. And I think that this is the main indicator of, of the major shift that's happening. And I think that it's good because it, it forces us to work in a repetitive way. You no longer will be faced with logging into an EC2 instance and going like, oh my God, why do I have 200 servers? Who spin them up? What is going on? And trying to understand like, 
what is going on. Now everything is documented, you have a file, and you know who wrote it. Hopefully you revision it in Git, so you know what changes were made, who are the persons that did that. And I think that that's a very good transition. And then whether it's a YAML, TOML, JSON, to me it's all the same. I don't really mind. I think that the transition itself is the most interesting part. One thing that we're managing with our configuration is policy. What is policy? So policy, um, that's a great question. It can be very different and it can be different for different um, organizations or persons within the organization. So you could have a policy that would say, do not, uh, for every resource that you spin up, you should have at least two of them. That's also like SOC 2 basic thing. Like don't have one container because it might die. Have at least two or three. Another policy might be don't commit secrets into code because then it might will have like you might be exposed and everyone knows what constantly happens with like AWS secret keys and so on. And another policy might be use a specific module in a specific version um, and then another policy could be you need to have at least three reviewers in order to merge your code. I think that in general, like a policy is an abstraction layer to say, here are the things that you should follow and do. And if you do that, we think that we will help you and you will do the right thing and prevent you from, I don't know, possibly doing the wrong thing. Now you need to think of which policies you follow, which ones you don't, how do you follow them, how do you implement them. What are some ways in which policy gets mismanaged? So I think that the number one thing that policy gets mismanaged is that people write different policies and then no one's accountable for them and there is no way of actually knowing whether someone's following them or not. And just writing out policies without having the visibility of whether are they being enforced or not, whether they're being followed or not, I think is the most important thing. Because just defining a policy doesn't give you anything. You co-founded Detree. What is Detree? So Detree is a GitOps policy enforcement solution. It allows customers to define different policies for development best practices or possibly any custom policy that they would like. And then for every change that happens on top of their Git vendor, for example, GitHub, it will automatically run against the policy engine. And then it will check whether the developer made code changes that are compliant with the policy of the organization. And they can decide whether they want to block or enforce um, uh, this pull request and make sure that it can not be merged into the master branch, for example. What problems does Detree solve for developers? So Detree solves um, the, I would say, synchronization and preventing mishaps in production. So at the end, like if you ask me what's the number one uh, thing that we're proud of, what's our number one goal? So the goal is to uh, help people um, prevent downtime in production. And all of our customers, it goes down to we meet with them and they go like, listen, we had one, two, three, four, five production outages. Let's codify those um, 
things, let's make them a policy and let's make sure it doesn't happen to us again. And by the way, what other built-in policies do you have that will protect me from making risky changes, mishaps in production, security issues? And like maybe I'll explain, the way the tree works is seamless. So you just install a GitHub application and that's it. Then we scan the entire repositories of all of your organization and we extract only the metadata. So that's all of the source code packages like NPM, Python, Ruby, C Sharp, whatever you're using, all of the infrastructure code, CI CD configuration, basically anything that has a code footprint in it, we scan it. And then we build a visibility layer, which we call a catalog. And then you can actually ask yourself simple questions like who is using what and where, like which version which package, where do I have Travis CI in my organization, where do I have a Docker file, where don't I have a git ignore file, where don't I have a code owners file that will define who is responsible for this organization. And then once you have the visibility layer, the catalog, we allow you to define smart policies on top of that. So this will help you actually Make sure that all of those policies that you want are automatically enforced. So then you don't need to configure anything. We will automatically, for every repository that you have, for every pull request that is being opened, we work with GitHub checks and we automatically trigger upon any change. And it will run according to our policy engine and we will very fast give indications to the developer whether he or she are working within the best practices and policy or not. And we can actually block a merge of a code if you so desire. And then they will click to find out more, like what's the problem? And then they will see, ah, you're committing secret keys. You should fix that. Or you don't have a version for a package, an NPM package that you put here. So basically, every time you build this code, it's like going to the casino because it will generate a different version every time. So you should pinpoint a version. And we help the developers understand, like, what is the problem? How do I fix it? Then they fix it, commit the changes back to the pull request, and then the engine gives them a thumbs up and they can merge it into production. Let's go into some of those details of it. You said you extract metadata from GitHub. So when I'm onboarding with Detree because I want better policy management, I want better config management, what metadata is there in GitHub? Can you talk in more detail about what that metadata is and what you're getting from it? Yes. So first of all, there are two options of deployment. One is full SaaS and the other one is like a hybrid mode where the analyzer, the thing that actually scans your code, runs within your environment and we only send the metadata. Now, what is a metadata? So, we, uh, for every Git repository, we read all of the history, we rewind all of the commits, and we actually understand which person did which commit, which changes to which file, and we know to understand and read different formats. For example, uh, all of the major programming languages. So we know to extract from a package JSON which modules are you using and in which versions. We can see that, for example, we can scan all of the different files and identify whether you have a Docker file, 
Basically, anything that has a code footprint inside your Git repository, we will send that metadata only like which package, which version, which file name, and so on. We will never send your code and which person actually did interactions with it. And then when we send all this data from your hundreds of repositories, it will then allow us to create this tree. You will have the tree of all of your different modules and which, where are you using them in which repositories and which person is using what and where. And you will have a iBird view. So you can ask yourself, where am I using a MongoDB driver? For example, Mongoose. And then you will see the information across all of the repositories. So this bird's eye view of the different tools that are used in different areas of my Git repository, why is this useful to me? So this is useful to you if we go back to the example that I gave. So let's say you know that a specific version of a module is not good for you or you're in a transition now, let's say you want to have 100% of CI/CD within your organization. You say, guys, we're using CircleCI or Travis or CodeFresh or whatever you're using. We want that. Let's go. We're going to go 100% CI/CD. Now you're asking yourself, so wait, what is the coverage that we have? I don't know. So you need to go repo by repo checking whether you have a CircleCI file or not or a Jenkins file or whether are you using a specific package. Let's say there is a vulnerability in a package and you need to make sure that you don't use this version of a package or the package itself. So how are you to know which, basically it's a bill of materials. It's a catalog of all of the, all of the things that build your software. And then you can actually go and see what you have and where. And so intuitively, I completely understand. That sounds really useful to me. Can you tell me more about the use cases that people have found to be the most relevant when, okay, you get this tree that describes the different things, the different tools that you're using in different places, and it's a tree because everything is being used from the top node of the tree, and then as you go down into deeper and deeper branches and leaves of the tree, uh, fewer and fewer software packages are used, so you can just kind of see where different software is used in what places. But what particular use cases, how is this actionable for me? That's a great question. So it is actionable uh, together with the policy engine. So then um, we have different policies, such as you shouldn't have secret keys in your code, you should have a git ignore file, very different, uh, you shouldn't commit your configuration files into code, and so on and on and on and on. So when you s sign into for the tree for the first time, you immediately get the current status of your organization according to those policies. So for example, the moment you sign in, we build the catalog, and then we immediately know whether you have secret keys in your code or not. So now you get this list of all of the repositories where you have certificates, spams, keys, and so on. So now you go like, okay, so now I'm gonna open a Jira ticket and have my team take care of that ASAP. And now you ask yourself, how am I to prevent this from happening again? So now you can set a policy and make sure that it doesn't happen again. So that's the first use case of like knowing what's happening currently 
within your organization according to the policies that you set. The second thing is that we have smart policies. For example, because we know all of the different repositories and different modules that you have, you can set up a policy. We have a policy that if you're introducing a new uh, package for your organization that has been never used in your organization, it will notify it into Slack and you would possibly want to start an internal process of like verifying this package, making sure that it's green light for being used, that it doesn't have like a GPL license, that it, it is compatible with, with your stack. So this is one unique thing where it's not just policies that are if this, then that. You have the notion of what you currently have within your catalog. So you can set a policy, for example, for my internal authentication authorization um, NPM module that we built, all the microservices should use up to the three latest versions. And if there's a new version, it, they will be notified and they will know that they need to update it. Or if I'm building an internal package and I want to deprecate a specific uh, API or SDK call, I'm asking myself, wait, which other microservices are using this package? So by using our catalog view, you can actually get the answer. And just to make this a little bit clearer to people, if you are somebody who has ever deployed a, uh, a project to, let's say, a AWS, and you have the code in an open source repository, and you include a secret in that open source GitHub repository, like you you include the access key to an S3 bucket, uh, that's a vulnerability because if anybody saw that GitHub repo, they could just take your key and start spamming your S3 bucket with all kinds of stuff and start just using your storage and charging you for it. And and that's the good scenario. The bad scenario is that the, that is your root key and they lock you out of your own account and start extorting you, and this happened. You can Google that. That happened on AWS? That kind of thing happens on AWS? Yeah. They really? lock you out of your account, and yeah, they start blackmailing you. If you don't pay us, we're going to delete your account. True story. Can't uh, In that scenario, not to take things off topic, but in that scenario, can't you just go to AWS customer service and be like, hey, uh, uh, my account got taken over? Yeah, but you it's know. a time-sensitive issue, right? That's true. They can That's also true. start just publish your code open source. They right. can take the list of your customers. They can make changes to things. It's it's a very nasty thing. It's very dangerous. Like there is a company that got wiped from the earth because it happened to them and it actually closed the company because their backups were in their same AWS account only in a different region. And then when they got locked out and they didn't want to pay, they just deleted their entire account and their backups. Was that like two or three years ago? I think I remember that company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was code something. Um, yeah, yeah. That was that was a that was a scary thing. I remember reading the TechCrunch article and I was like, seriously? Like, wow. But anyway, that's the stakes that we're talking about here. That's why, even if we're just talking about the level of enforcing secret management, this is this is pretty important. Now, I want to understand better why this is a hard problem, because, you know, if AWS is able to just throw on some feature where they scan 
repositories for um, for keys. You know, I've gotten automated emails from AWS before that are like, uh, "Hey, you've got an S3 thing exposed in your uh, an S3 key exposed in your in your GitHub repository. You need to clean that up." If Amazon is able to do this. Why do we need you know a solution from you from Detree to to scan all of my stuff for all this different kinds of secret management? Yeah, so secret management is only one example, right? But again, secret management is not just your AWS keys. It's maybe your certificate, your SSL certificate. It may be anything that that you have in order to access different resources. And just just one example that is very clear and, and simple to understand, you shouldn't have your secrets exposed because then bad people can use that and, and make things happen. Um, and I think that have, like, this is the number one. We have 100% of our customers using this policy because everyone understands that having secrets in your code is, is very, very dangerous. Um, but I think that the main value comes when you know, usually um, people who are in the DevOps role or SRE or operations, they, they come to us and they say, listen, we have different best practices and guidance that we want to, to propagate and implement within our organization, but, but it's, it's, it's nearly impossible. And even if the developers agree with them and they want to do them, they don't always remember to follow them. And, and it's not always feasible to do that. So by defining centralized policies, it's the first time where you can have a centralized management for all of your Git repositories in one place. And one benefit I can see from that is over time you get maybe network effects. And tell me if I'm wrong about this, but you get network effects where people are introducing policies like don't allow, you know, I've got I've got secrets for this obscure piece of SaaS software. And I, I want to enforce the policy around that piece of obscure SaaS software. If somebody else creates a policy, then when I start using Detree, if Detree scans my metadata, Detree can see if I am using that obscure piece of SaaS software. And now it can say, okay, what are the other policies people have made on the Detree platform? Let's, let's suggest these as policies that maybe you should have on your repo. I totally agree. This is totally right, and uh, this is something that we're working on. We're working also on an uh, open source play now, where anyone can share and like have their own uh, um, policies and best practices, and we will be just the engine to do that because we're ju- actually we're just doing the, all of the heavy lifting and understanding, like mapping everything and cataloging it, and working with all of the Git vendors APIs, which has no interest to any company. This is no any company's business, but it's everyone's business, like the cherry on the top to write the, the, the policy itself. So by having customers uh, share different policies and by having our engine saying, hey, you're starting to use Kubernetes. Would you be interested in this policy pack that has the top 10 best practices for Kubernetes? It's like, yeah, of course I want that. And we're actually working with different vendors in order to build those best practices um, uh, packages, like best practice pack, rule pack for serverless, for Kubernetes, for SOC 2 security. And that's like one side that we're focusing on. And the other side is making the platform as customizable as possible because we have all kinds, you know, you open it to customers, they do different crazy things. 
that you wouldn't think of. And it starts from very simple things like I want to enforce the branch name. I want to enforce the commit message. Or if this happens according to something else, I, I, like they have their own internal like policies and things. And sometimes also companies have complicated processes internally that they just want to customize for their own needs that might be not relevant to everyone, but are very, very unique and, and important to them. I think this is interesting because this is a kind of business that is built on top of GitHub. And obviously, there are other businesses that have been built on top of GitHub. But I think this is probably the first one that I've, I've done a show on where it's like, this is kind of using GitHub as a platform to build an entire other platform on top of, because I can imagine a, there's, there's probably a lot of potential that you could potentially get from doing this kind of code. And I mean, there, I guess there have been code like static analysis businesses. But what are the other adjacent market adjacencies that you could expand into once you have, well, since you have this, this tree of information about repositories? So the way I see it is we just happen to be integrated on top of GitHub now. And we're also, we already, already have early versions with Bitbucket and uh, GitLab. The way I see it is that if you take a time machine ten, 10 years ago and you ask a software company, would you like all of your best practices and policies to be automatically enforced when every developer makes a change? Of course they would say yes. It's not a new problem. Everyone wants that. The, the problem was that everything was scattered. Nothing was codified. Many of the things were in per- people's heads and but were, were done manually by people's hands. So it was just not feasible to do. Today, we scan code and we build the catalog and we build the enforcement engine. So we just it just happened to be that all of the code is nowadays in Git and, and it just happens to be that GitHub is one of the most powerful Git vendors. If you think about it, we could scan, download code from AWS Lambda, which sits there in a zip file, and do the same thing for all of your AWS lambdas. And for us, it doesn't matter. I'm not sure I understand that. Can you, can you clarify that more, that example? So today, what's important for us is to understand what's going on within your Git, uh, what's going on within your, within your code. So it just happens to be that all of the code is today mainly in Git. Yeah, But if you think about it, when we catalog all the code and, and, and everything that happens there, one example could be that we could go to AWS Lambda and all of the code there is in a zip file and we can download it from the Lambda and we could actually tap into cloud um, CloudWatch and see uh, CloudTrail and see who uploaded it and so on. And we could build the same catalog based on zip and code that is in AWS Lambda and, and, and IAM uh, roles that different people use in order to upload it. It's, it just happens to be that everyone's in I see. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. So since that code's going to execute, you want it to execute in a way that takes into account the policies that you are including, whether those policies are related to security or they're related to hitting certain endpoints or they're related to rate limiting, or it's just a, you're, you're talking about just a policy management engine platform. Yeah. Like 
If you think of policy, number one, identifying and understanding what is the current status. Number two is applying uh, enforcement and gatekeeping, what goes in, what goes out. Number three, by the way, if you look at the classical security case, is remediation, right? This is what, like, if those are the three main pillars. Now, we don't remediate per se, but the next thing that we can go on is, like, uh, we call it maybe automation or actions. So we scan everything. We see that you have those, for example, uh, we talk a lot about the secret keys example. So we, use, we see the keys. So number one, we put a policy that you don't commit any more keys. And now we automatically open pull requests to remove those keys for you and to suggest you to, to use new ones. It's like an existing paradigm only on the new era. Speaking of new era and policy management, we did a show fairly recently about Spiffy and Spire, and we also did a show about Open Policy Agent, and these are the open source tools for doing policy management within Kubernetes. Uh, but these are, I, I think this is a kind of a different type type of problem because I think a lot of the, what they're doing there is, I mean, there are policies that you can write around, you know, the secret management and stuff. And I think you could do it with Spiffy Inspire and, and Open Policy Agent if you wanted to. But those are, I, th- I feel like those are more related to like access management. Like, you know, is this service allowed to access this other service? Is this user allowed to access the services in this thing, as opposed to to like secret management. But I'm just wondering, like in the Venn diagram of responsibilities, where does Detree uh, overlap with Spiffy Inspire and Open Policy Agent? So I think that we're complementary to one another. We're a shift left company, so we try to be as close as possible to the developer. And there are uh, other companies also like Fugue and other like policy engines of uh, Chef and like Chef Inspect or or HashiCorp where they put on policies on the runtime itself and they try to enforce and and do things on the on the runtime on the let's say cloud assets themselves. But if you think about it, if everything is shifting into code and everything is going to be managed through Git, then anything that you do will start and end from Git. You're not going to twist and do any, any, anything within your AWS account. And many of our customers, their AWS console is locked or maybe view-only mode, and you cannot create new resources. So as I see it, we focus more on the code level, and we also provide policies that are more also like cultural or more towards a programming best practices and not only the runtime, but it also talks about runtime. I'll give you an example. One company that we spoke with, they're using a chef and one of the developers made a change to the chef recipe and then, then he opened a pull request and they missed it in the pull request that he removed one line and this line that he removed was the security agent that was installed on all of the machines. Now, what uh, Ansible and Chef and Puppet and so on, they make sure that your infrastructure is up to date with your recipe. So what actually happened is that it went and removed the security agent and installed it from production. And then the security team is like horrified, like, oh my God, what are we, what are we going to do now? 
Because even though the developers don't have access to production, everything goes from code. And if we don't have any policy in place where if you're touching this security agent, it should be approved by security team, then they have no control. They have nothing to do. What can they do? Well, Shimon, it's been really interesting talking about all these different subjects, particularly policy management and the idea of a bird's eye view of GitHub repositories. Is there anything you want to close off with? What's in the future? What else do you want to build? And what would you like the audience to know? So I think that one thing that every listener should ask himself is, do I know how my code reaches production? And I think that it's a very important lesson and very important like test to do to yourself, whether how are you really involved and are you really transitioning into this new world where you, the developer is responsible end-to-end and knows how everything works. Of course, for us, uh, we just see more and more demand for what we do because people actually face those problems and they have no idea how to manage all of their Git repositories. So, of course, you might build unmaintainable scripts and you might try to tackle it by yourself. But for us, we, we actually want to enable customers to focus on their business and just to use our engine. So going forward, we're going to introduce support for more Git vendors and more infrastructure as code uh, languages and would love to hear feedback from people and they can just sign in into like the tree.io and sign in with their GitHub and they will immediately get like a report of what is their status? How, what is, are their GitHub repositories, let's say healthy or not in a way? And I'm always happy to, to hear feedback and if they have any questions, they can reach out. My email is shimon at the tree.io. I'm always I'm here in San Francisco, and I'm happy to chat. Shimon, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking. Thank you very much for having me. It was very interesting. Wow.